Hi, this is Michelle Branch, and you're listening to the LSQ Podcast. Hi, Michelle Branch. Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. I'm so happy to be talking to you. (laughs) I know, I know. It's a weird, it's a weird situation in which to be catching up with you, my friend, but I'm glad that we can do this thing that I've always wanted to do with you. I mean, this is truly my idea of fun on a Friday evening. (laughs) Is getting to stand here with my a little bit of wine, a little bit of uh, canned coffee beverage. Nice, both, and get into it. But um, yeah, I, uh, I, you know, on the show, I don't know if you've ever listened to the podcast, but I, I like to dig into people with people to their kind of earliest encounters with music and encounters with creativity, um, and it's you know fascinating how early to me how early you not only took to music, but really took to it. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what you remember of, of the first time music hit you and, and, and you felt like it was something special. Yeah, I literally for as long as I can remember, I have sang and I have been completely obsessed with music. And my mom and dad have tapes of me singing to singing along to uh, Fievel, the uh, American Tale theme song when I was three. And I would just, my mom had this microphone that plugged into the stereo and I would just <laughs> insist on singing along to whatever record she was playing. Um, for as long as I can remember, I was just literally obsessed with music. What was the first, what was the first artist that you, that you were a fan of or felt like you wanted to know more about? I was a diehard Beatles fan, uh, knowing that My Name Michelle was also a Beatles song. That song was played for me a lot when I was a little girl. My dad would put it on and, you know, we'd dance around the living room or whatnot. And so I just, I had, I actually didn't have a Beatles record. I had a, a compilation of, it was called Beatles Love Songs that Michelle was on. It was the first song on Side B and it was the first thing that I owned and would play over and over and over again. So that was kind of my, my first obsession. You know, I'm only realizing this now as you, as you talk about it, that of course it makes sense as well that you have an affinity for uh, French music or music inspired (laughs) by French and singing in French. Right. I I mean, it's, I remember, I remember learning that song on piano um, as a kid and um, as, you know, being a nerdy kid, I liked that it forced me to, you know, that like singing along with it forced me to like sing in French, which I didn't know any words in French except the parts in Michelle. Yeah, it's like, it's Frère Jacques and it's Michelle. And that's like the extent of French that most people know. The, so the Beatles were a big, did you, you, you kind of became obsessed with it? I, I did. I mean, I remember if, if there was a show, a documentary or any kind of special about the Beatles when I was a kid. My mom and dad would let me stay up late to watch it. And I would just be sitting there glued to the TV. And actually like my heart was like hurt because I wasn't alive then. And I would just like soak it up and I would get so (laughs) upset that I wasn't around (laughs) to see the Beatles. It was like a true tragedy of my youth. Um, And I mean, besides that, I, I listened to a lot of 
uh, of my parents' record collection. Um, my mom definitely listened to more pop music, uh, but they had a good kind of range of, you know, Led Zeppelin, and then there were girl groups. And um, But for some reason, another really, really early favorite of mine was Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, like completely um. over the moon about them. I mean, I just, I love harmonies. Um, so I was always just constantly singing along to whatever was on in the car and trying to find harmonies. And I think that's why I must have loved groups like that so much. Did either of your parents play music or anything? No, my mom, my mom played, you know, flute and school band or something, but both my, both my parents' fathers were musical. My dad's father sang and, um, he loved Frank Sinatra. And so anytime he could get in front of a microphone, he would sing. And, um, my mom's father played guitar and her little brother had a band and played guitar and unfortunately he died in a car accident um but i when i was two but i inherited his guitars uh and he was really into rock rock and roll but your parents noticed that you were that you were gifted at music i'm guessing because they helped you like enroll in what was some sort of university-based music program when you were just like an adolescent right yeah, um, like my dad's a plumbing contractor. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, um, and she, they knew that, you know, any chance I could get. I went to a private Catholic school, so I was a part of the choir there. I would sing at school all week and on the weekends at church, but I just I wanted to, I wanted to sing. My mom used to take me at Christmas to see a local production of um, The Nutcracker at the auditorium at the university, NAU. And uh, there was a children's choir singing Christmas songs. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to be part of that. So the following year, I joined the children's choir there. And then uh, the teacher suggested that I take private voice lessons there. So I started taking voice lessons when I was eight at NAU. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I didn't, that's a pretty, I didn't, that's I, a pretty cool technical, <laughs> technical skill set to acquire that young, right? I'm guessing that as someone who really liked to sing it, you, you, it served you well when you started, you know, writing your own songs just to have like that technical training at such a young age. Yeah. You know, I learned how to breathe properly and warm up and do vocal exercises. And it, it was the highlight of my week. I would go after school and, I remember there'd be a bunch of high school and college kids doing it and I'd be this like little kid in the hall <laughs> just waiting and we would sing show tunes and um, then we'd have a recital and I just, I loved it so much. I was really just obsessed. Did there start to be like contemporary young artists who felt like that was your own thing that, that you were finding, um, you know, around that time? No. <laughs> Did you, there wasn't like you weren't listening to like whatever the pop music on the radio would have been um, well, in no, 1994 or whatever I, the fuck. I was really into Ace of Base. Um, when Ace of Base came out, I was really into the Gin Blossoms because they were local. Um, yeah, and my mom, 
like like I said, my mom was in charge of the radio when we were in the car, and so we listened to you know what whatever she listened to, which tended to be like a little bit more like eighties pop, like you know the Eagles up into you know Hall and Oates and stuff right like Whitney that. Houston and yeah. stuff. So, but as far as like listening to my own music, it was I my growing up where I grew up is it's really interesting. So I lived in Flagstaff till I was 11 and it's a college town but we didn't really get a lot of bands definitely no one that I saw uh coming through Flagstaff and we had a record store uh but when I moved when I moved to Sedona at 11 um there was literally no record store in Sedona Arizona and we had no live music so I think being a teenager and having, you know, babysitting money and nowhere to even like buy records. I feel that I, I definitely like missed out on a lot of stuff because I, I didn't have a place to discover it. I would listen to whatever radio stations that we got there. Um, and if I liked a song, I would like record it on a tape. But other than that, there was like my, my older brother was busy listening to like Slayer and Tool and so he wasn't really like bringing records home that I was getting into at the time so um so a lot of the music that I found was you know through being in the car and scanning radio channels I'm intrigued though because it's like how like who were then your sort of when you started thinking I'm gonna write something I, I I write my own songs and even at such an early age to have started recording music and and entering officially the music business like were who did you want to be like you know who who did you look to and think if they can do it I can do it or 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 was that never kind of uh yeah, I it's it's like it's almost like you uh, arrived at this, you know, musical creativity just separate from any, from any direct influence. <laughs> no, there was there I guess when I got a little bit older, um so I I remember I started writing songs before I had an instrument to play. Um my my parents we didn't have the space or the money to buy a piano and taking voice lessons, my voice teacher kept saying, you know, it'd be a great thing for you guys to have a piano in the house. And it just didn't happen. We had this tiny little keyboard, um, Casio thing that was, you know, two feet long. Um, but beyond that, I didn't have a guitar or anything. And so I remember, um, (laughs) one of the first songs I wrote was this song that I called Jealousy and I was in fifth grade and it was very inspired by, the gin blossoms who I knew were from Arizona and I would just go around the playground singing this song I made up to my friends and they'd be like hey Michelle will you sing that song again that you made up and I'd like go around singing it to people it's very bizarre um but yeah it wasn't until uh, my 14th birthday that I asked my mom and dad for a guitar and that was I got really into uh Lisa Loeb and that's when I asked for a guitar. And I, and that was right right after um, it was Lisa Loeb and then Jagged Little Pill came out. And I was like, okay, mom and dad, I want a guitar. Damn, yeah, that'd do it, right? Yeah. 
And so once you had the guitar, did you, did it, did it immediately change sort of the way you were writing songs or the, or the kinds or what the songs sounded like once you learned to play? Yeah. Um, my parents didn't want to invest any money on something that I wasn't going to be serious about or stick with. So they didn't actually even buy me a guitar. They, uh, my mom's father, his guitar was passed down to her brother, my uncle. And my uncle had it and kind of dabbled here and there. And so when he came over to visit, he brought the guitar for me and said that I could borrow it. And he brought, you know, a chord book and um, a Neil Young fake book and a Cat Stevens book. And I mean, I, I knew songs in those books. And so I just locked myself in my room basically and taught myself those songs. I think one of the first songs that I played on guitar was the song love is a rose from neil young and um about like a week later i walked out in the living room and i asked my mom and dad if i could play them something and i played them something and they were like wow that's great whose song is that and i said oh no it's mine it's a song i wrote and they were like really you you did that in a week and i i just it it was the only thing i i spent all my free time as a teenager doing was you know sitting in my room listening to music and learning how to play guitar and um and yeah trying to find the chords that were going under songs that were in my head trying to figure out you know the music that was missing to it wow i mean that must have been just like such a sweet just a sweet interlude of life to find this (laughs) thing that you loved that you didn't know you'd love that much the the bizarre thing is this all happened at 14, 15 years old. And my daughter, Owen, turned 15 uh, at the beginning of the month. And and it's just really bizarre to see her at that age and realize how driven I was. Patrick and I are always like, Owen, is there anything you're passionate about that you think you're into? And she's like, no, I'm going to figure it out one day. And I'm like, oh, my God. At that point, I was literally eat, sleep, breathing music. That's all I that's all I did with my free time. Yeah. I mean, did you, you, it may not have been something you noticed, but you know, did you, did it make you feel better? You know, did you find, did it become necessary to you? Oh yeah. 100%. I mean, being a teenager fucking sucks and I would never, you know, want to go through that ever again, but because of, of having having music to go to um i think it really kept me out of trouble and it and kept me focused and it was something that that i felt like i was good at i was a terrible student and it it gave me something i i knew that i wanted to do music for a living and and it was just it was my ticket out of the small town i lived in and uh, I feel like I probably would have been a lot more social <laughs> in school, uh, had I not had music. Uh, but at the same time, it really just quickly took over my life. And so how did, how did you sort of go from, you know, just being this, this young woman writing songs, looking up to Alanis and, and Lisa Loeb and stuff to having a record contract within a few years of that? Yeah, it's it's bizarre. So 
I started playing, well, first came, uh, I was going to public high school. I was, I was in the first half of my sophomore year, which is crazy again, because my daughter literally is doing, it started 10th grade this week. Um, and I remember sitting down with a college counselor and they said, you know, what do you, what college do you want to go to? Um, what's your interest? What, what do you want to do for your future? And I, you know, said, well, I'm going to be a musician. And they just kind of laughed and was like, okay, that's great. But what's your backup plan? And I was like, no, I, I don't have a backup plan. Like, this is what I'm doing. Like I was so offended at the thought of having to have a backup plan. And, uh, I, I was fucking off at school. I was getting terrible grades. I was skipping math class to go hang out in the theater and hang out in the music room when when choir wasn't in and using their piano to write. And I started begging my mom and dad to let me drop out of school, which didn't go over well, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> the closest art school was... Uh, an hour away, you know, we didn't know how I was going to get to and from there. My parents both worked. It was expensive. Um, there was some other kind of school options, but nothing that seemed easier or obvious. So I finally, like, I was such a little shithead. I, I started locking my bedroom door in the morning when my dad came to wake me up to get ready for school. And I just refused to go to school and sat down at dinner and I asked my parents, I said, you know, why can't I homeschool? And that way I can actually like study things I'm interested in and I can spend more time writing music and working on music. And I mean, I did this for like a couple months. I just, I was relentless. And finally one night my dad was like, you know, Peggy to my mom, why does she have to go to school? Like, it's clear that this is what she's passionate about. Like, let's just, let's let her homeschool. So I dropped out of high school. I never went back after Christmas break. And I started taking correspondence courses. Um, and it was like, I, I picked, you know, photography, creative writing, astronomy, like any class that seemed like I could like easily sail through it. And, uh, and I kept working on music and writing and writing and writing. And um, at that point, I started uh, my voice teacher who was teaching me voice lessons. Uh, her husband taught guitar. And she was like, you should start taking guitar lessons. And um, when I started taking lessons with him, they were like, hey, we have a four track. We'll like start recording these songs for you if you want. And that's where the idea of like putting these songs down came from and so essentially I started making a record um, and then that record suddenly once I was recording a record I was like well I want to play some shows and you know like I said there were there there weren't any venues in Sedona Arizona to play so my mom at the time managed a Mexican restaurant and on like Tuesday nights I ended up going and performing at the bar with the baseball game on or whatever game was on behind me on mute. 
um, <laughs> after school or after, you know, my school hours, I'd make a couple hundred bucks in tips and, you know, play for a couple hours. And I did that. You for, played your original songs? I played original songs, which is, I mean, that is brutal. Only like true drunks could sit through that. I mean, it's, they were so polite too. Um, but once in a while I'd throw in, you know, a Sheryl Crow song or a Jewel song or something. <laughs> Um, but it was, yeah, it was mostly originals, which is crazy. Did you have a sense at all at that time that you, that you were good at what you were doing? I did because, um, at that point I finished my record and I, and my sweet dad, he, we printed a run, a small run. I don't even know how many copies I'd have to ask him um and we started selling him at the show and at first it was like you know my mom and dad's friends buying it and my friends buying it but then like when a stranger would be up for the weekend from phoenix and eating at the restaurant and come and buy a ten dollar cd it was like whoa you just bought a cd and i'm 15 years old (laughs) thanks like that's cool and that's when i started really really thinking about how to get a record deal and how to get signed and I remember sitting in my friend's room um literally looking in the phone book to try to find record companies or looking on the back of albums like seeing if there were phone numbers we could call and be like hey I have some music I want to play for you uh yeah how did you find some professional person who could help you <laughs> so at this point you know i was i was playing my my weekly gig at the Mexi- at the Havelina cantina and uh i started getting asked uh locally to play other events like uh you know the fair um i would play the flagstaff fair i played the arizona state fair down in phoenix um i would play you know potluck dinners at the high school (laughs) it's really (laughs) wild days um but there was a private school in town called the verde valley school and jackson brown's son went there and jackson brown started a benefit concert for the school and it only ran for a few years but during this time i went to the festival with my parents and my friend Allison and her mom were working backstage and catering. And so I went backstage to help them, you know, in catering and obviously brought a demo in my pocket. And I ended up like stopping Jackson and catering and asked him, you know, if I could give him my demo. And he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, thanks. I'll take it. You know, I didn't think I would hear one word. And then uh within the following weeks I started like hearing stories that he was talking about me on stage at other shows that he had that week that he had listened to my music and was really surprised that it was good and so he contacted me and asked you know what was going on and if I had any more music that he could hear and he invited me back to sing at the festival so you know it was Patty Griffin and um Crosby, Stills, and Nash, no young, um, and Sean Colvin, and like it was actually kind of an incredible lineup, and and they had me open the show, and 
I got a feature. What? Yeah. <laughs> and so you, I mean, I mean, you that wow, what a, I mean, holy shit, that must have been. It was crazy. I and uh, Jackson came out and and introduced me on stage and said, you know, this is a local girl and told the story and. And he was really supportive. I mean, for years we were we were in touch, and he'd play my music for people. And um, we actually played at the Democratic rally years ago together when John Kerry was running. Um, and he's, I mean, it was kind of just unbelievable to be taken under his wing like that. Bonnie Raitt was on the bill, and you know, so here I found myself like standing there with like Patty Griffin and Bonnie Raitt, and I was like are you fucking kidding me? These are like two of my heroes. This is insane that I'm sharing a stage with them. And, and that's when like people started, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm from Phoenix. I'm a manager. Hey, I'm from LA. I'm a manager. Um, and that's when, uh, I realized like, yeah, we should maybe start calling some of these people and playing them my music. Cause this is what I want to do for a living. Um, it wasn't until my, I met my manager, Jeff Rabhan. Uh, he was on a timeshare tour in Sedona. And he was with his girlfriend at the time. Um, I think her name's Allison Hamamara. She was at Capitol Records. And he was writing for like Rolling Stone and Spin and Hits Magazine. He was a music journalist. And uh, he managed, he was kind of helping out another band. And they were they were in town on vacation and got sucked into a timeshare tour. And the woman who was giving in the tour said, you know, what do you do for a living? How much do you make annually? You know, doing the timeshare thing. And when she found out (laughs) that they were in the music business, she sent them on their tour and she called me and remember I'm homeschooled now at this time. And when I say homeschooled, like my parents had jobs. So it wasn't like I had much supervision. I was at home alone and uh, she called me and said, there's someone from the music business here. Like, get down here with one of your tapes or CDs or whatever. And I didn't have a driver's license. My parents were gone. I live in a resort community <laughs> of Sedona. So I went to my neighbor who had a golf cart. And I said, can I take your golf cart for a bit? I'll be right back. And they said, yeah. And I cut a picture of myself out of a family portrait. And I put it in, in the in this tape jacket and I drove it there and I was there waiting when he was done with his tour and I gave it to him. And he was like really annoyed. He was like, oh, great. Yeah, thanks, kid, for, you know, giving me your record. And uh, thank God they got in a fight on the drive back to L.A., on the eight-hour drive back to L.A. and put my tape in the car uh, put it in the stereo because they didn't want to talk to each other. And he was like, oh, wow, this is really fucking good. And he called me when he got back to L.A. and and uh, asked if I had a manager. And that was kind of this, when everything kind of started rolling. Wow. And so he right out of the gate probably had some, you know, had an impression of what kind of artist you were. Was, you know, I'm intrigued to, I'm intrigued to hear about your kind of early encounters with actual people in the business and and kind of how your view of yourself as an artist early on and 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 the way they wanted to package you kind of yeah. intersected. Well, Jeff had had 
had helped his friend Starling McElwain out on this band of kids kind of the same age as me called Hanson. And so that was happening in Jeff's life. And so Jeff took my demo to Sterling and he was like, what do you think of this? And he was like, oh, wow, I think she should open a couple shows for us. That'd be amazing. And, you know, they were very big at the time. And um, at the same time, he also sent my demos to his friend Danny Strick, who had just started working as an A&R person at Maverick Records. And he sent it to Danny and said, hey, what do you think I should do with this artist I've started working with? Um, you know, any advice would be appreciated. And Danny heard it and said, I actually might want to sign her. And Jeff said, well, she's actually opening up for Hanson at the Wiltern in L.A. in a couple weeks. You should come see her play. And Danny came down to the Wiltern and saw me play. It was just me and, a, and an acoustic guitar. And I had like a 45-minute opening set, like competing over screaming girls. And uh, Danny came backstage after the show and he said, you know, where's your mom and dad? I want to sign you. I want to offer you a record deal. So I, it was so bizarre how quick it all happened. Um, like I said, I got my guitar for my 14th birthday and all of this happened. I was playing the Wiltern like two weeks after my 15th birthday. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. So, um, by the time I actually like the paperwork for my record deal was signed, I had turned 16 and I was in the studio at that point, like working on the spirit room. Also, of course, lols that it took so fast for them to like, immediately seeing you, I want to sign you. And then it took almost a year to get the paperwork done. Classic. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I always joke that it's like, you know, the scene in, in that thing you do where they're in the studio recording and then they leave the studio and they hear it on the radio and then all of a sudden girls start recognizing them and chasing them down the street, like within a matter of, you know, three minutes of a movie montage. Like that's kind of weirdly how my life felt in that area, in that era. It's just like everything happens so fast. Um, but I, I don't know. It's, I think something about being, the age I was, I was, I, I didn't even stop to think, you know, I didn't even, there was no room for fear of like, oh no, what if I'm bad at this? Like, what if this doesn't work? It was just so much excitement and uh, momentum. And I, I don't know. I think if, if all of that would have happened, if I was 30 years old, I would have been like so plagued with fear and self doubt that I wouldn't have allowed myself to be so, um, you know, all in. Um, so I, I had a youth going for me in, in that factor. Right. In retrospect though, are there, knowing what you know now, are there any things you would have done differently? Or if say Owen came to you and said, I want to sign a record deal and that kind of thing, like, you know, are, are there things that you, that you feel kind of looking back, you're like that got kind of meh. Um, there were some definite being signed that young and and having success at that age, the, the thing, the only thing I regret has nothing to do with my music career. It had, has to do with the relationships that I had to my friends and family. 
um, my dad at the time, you know, he was a plumbing contractor, owned his own business. But at that point, he was like, oh, well, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to manage my daughter. And <laughs> we all know how that story ends. Um, my <laughs> my dad definitely got really involved in my career. Um, and we, we're in an amazing place now. So I can say this. My dad probably has a really funny side uh, to his story of version of it. <laughs> But, um, you know, my dad started <laughs> sitting in on label meetings, uh, you know, when I remember when we were planning to record the video, the music video for everywhere, he was in on the call asking why we had to spend so much money on a music video and saying, no, absolutely. Michelle's not spending this money out of her pocket. She's not going to ever recoup this. Like, why would she make a music video? And they were like, no, David, you don't understand. Like, it's MTV. Like, this is what we need. This is what we're banking on. And my dad, you know, was saying basically like, no, you can't spend money and put my daughter on MTV. And then, you know, word would get back to me and I'd have to be like, dad, everyone told me what you said in the meeting. And dad, I really want to be on MTV. I really want to make a music video. Like, can you shut your mouth, please? So, um, over over the years I actually had to like have a heart to heart with my dad and tell my dad like dad I want you to be my dad I don't don't want you involved in this and it was really hard and confusing and painful at the time but thank god we have an incredible relationship now and he did not become my dadager right did you feel like at that point you like could see who you were becoming as an artist yeah I I, my vision, <laughs> that sounds weird to say my vision, but I, I definitely, like when I released my first record, it sounded the way I wanted it to. It wasn't manipulated by anybody. Um, it was definitely a hundred percent like what I, what I wanted, um, which is kind of amazing that I was able to do that. My, my A&R guy, Danny, um, who's a dear friend of mine to this day, he literally allowed nobody from the record company in when I was making my first record. And I remember Guy Osiri was there just like, Danny, what the hell? Like, we have to hear this record. Like, you have to let me in the studio. I have to hear some music. And Danny said, no, you'll hear it when it's finished. Um, so we had nobody chiming in about like singles or direction or anything. Like no one had even really met me from the label. And it wasn't until we were mixing the the spirit room that we invited label people down. And I remember getting this pep talk from Danny and my manager Jeff saying, you know, don't don't get bummed out if they keep their cards close to their chest and they're not reacting to the music um if you can't like really read how they're feeling about it they're probably you know going to talk about it amongst themselves later and then they'll get back to us about what they think like um and I remember the first song we played for them was everywhere and the song ended and the radio guy just yelled like holy shit this is a fucking hit song and I was like oh Okay, I was not I was told I would definitely not hear that reaction. Um so it was it was great that I really had 
creative control over my first record and was, you know, 16, 17 years old. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost seems like it's like an unrealistic, set up unrealistic expectations for a person, <laughs> you know, like. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, I'm I'm so grateful that Danny kept everybody out of the studio. My my producer who did my first and second record, John Shanks, is still like he's a brother to me. He produced that record and we were just in this tiny room in the basement of A&M and, uh, you know, Danny would come by to hear the record like, you know, once a week he would come down and hear songs. But other than that, we were like left to our own devices and um, I'm just like that that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess I just mean in more of the long view, and I'm curious to talk to hear you talk a little bit about the, you know, the the kind of span in between full length albums and and kind of what was going on there, um, yeah. and and whether just yeah whether you found that since then it there are ways in which the process of getting out an album has become easier and ways in which it's become more difficult. Yeah, it well the minute that I had a successful album, there was no there was no going under the radar anymore. Everybody wanted to know what I was doing when I was going to make my next record. Everyone wanted to know what it was going to sound like. Um, and there was no keeping like the peanut gallery out of it, which, which started. And, and this is mind you, like at the same time as I'm like hitting like angsty teenage years, um, you know, kind of trying to pick my battles with the record company over, you know, what, songs I want to be single and um I remember when Avril Lavigne's album came out um the record label was like you know you need young guys in your band like Avril like we don't want anyone in your band over the age of 19 like you can't have old dudes in your band and I was like that's so fucked up because I can't find like a 17 year old guy who can play the guitar parts on the record that John Shanks played like I, I want like the players I want in my band and um so fights like that started happening and then you know they would send a stylist down for the video and say oh you're you're not gonna actually our idea for this video is you're not gonna play guitar in it we're gonna have a choreographer you're gonna wear this you know leather bustier and I was like fuck you guys and I, rem I remember actually like storming off of the set of the breathe video like literally they were trying to close the gates on me and everyone was on their walkie-talkie like michelle's leaving the set michelle's leaving the set because i told the uh director that he was an asshole because <laughs> i was like no i'm not i'm going to play my guitar i'm not wearing like a skanky outfit um so i guess when that stuff started happening was when i really started uh kind of uh, immediately planning for what my next record would be. And I knew it was not going to be another Michelle Branch record. And that's when I kind of started fantasizing about having a group. And uh, I was writing music at the time with my backup singer, Jessica Harp. Um, and, you know, we were obsessing over Patty Griffin and the Dixie Chicks and stuff like that. And, uh, I said, you know what, I'm not going to make a Michelle Branch record because I can't deal with like all the shit that's happened with the success of having a pop record. It's just not what I've signed up for. And I was like, 
you know, get me the fuck out of here. So I, I told the label that I was going to actually do a country record <laughs> and I was starting a band and, uh, that really didn't go over well. Uh, there was my publisher at the time at Warner Chapel, like wanted to have an intervention because they thought I had all like lost my mind. Um, but it was my way of having control over a ship that seemed like it was kind of starting to steer out of my control. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's so interesting that, you know, the situation an artist can get in is where a huge success happens because of the artist's vision and the people with the checkbook are so worried that the next check won't be as big that, you know, they, that, that, that you know, that they're not going to make as much or something that they, that they start to get crazy or something. It's, it's like, don't you remember that the reason that you made all the money that you're now holding over this person's head or holding back is because they did what they thought was a good idea? Yeah, it's, it's wild. And, and it actually, even more than that, I, I was actually told by one of the record executives that they didn't want to release my music because it had the potential to be even bigger. And this was year, this was years later was <laughs> you, like, you have the potential to sell as many albums as Katy Perry. So we're not releasing the music you have now. Cause it will only sell a few million copies. I was literally told that by Tom Wally at Warner brothers. <laughs> and so I, I ended up like, because I had success, out of the gate being kind of held hostage by it and when I when I made the records album that was definitely kind of my way to to get out of to kind of get out of town for a bit and have some creative freedom yeah and by that point too you'd been because you moved to LA to do this thing right so you'd been living in LA for for a little while at that point and and that must have been just a different experience well that's you're not a very you're not a very la person (laughs) (laughs) that's the wild thing um having a teenage daughter is i moved out of my mom and dad's when i was 16 to la by myself and still to this day i'm like mom and dad like what the fuck were you thinking like how could you let me move by myself to la and they just told me, they said, well, you were either going to go with our blessing or you were going to go without it, but we, you were not going to stay. And, uh, you know, at that time I had a record deal and I was working and I, I was too busy to even like get into any trouble. Thank God. I mean, I was at the studio, I would come home from the studio like two thirty in the morning and then, you know, sleep sleep in and so then you just live by yourself turn around and go back to the studio and I lived by myself yeah <laughs> where was your pla- where was your place my place was on Sycamore between um Oakwood and and Melrose oh okay yeah Convenient. like right down the street from uh Sunset Sound from A&M uh I took over my manager's lease and and that was my apartment and I literally was like barely ever there. I lived at the studio. Um, but yeah, it's wild that it's wild that I lived in LA by myself at such a young age. But um, I don't know. I think because I had like so much kind of that I felt like I couldn't control in a way that I did a lot of stuff like I did a lot of stuff really young. I ended up. Uh, my bass player who was on my second album 
or who played on the tour for my second album, I should say, um, Teddy Landau. I ended up marrying him when I was 19. And we had Owen together when I was, you know, I was pregnant when I was 21. And I remember everyone at Maverick was just like, we want, you know, we want you to just appear really young and fun. And I remember telling them, well, I have some really young and fun news. I'm pregnant. And they were like, fuck, like Michelle. Like it was just like kind of self-sabotage in a way, but not really because I I didn't want to sabotage my music. I just wanted to like say fuck you to all of them. Like let me let me have some more control back. Right, right. Yeah, because it sounds like they were trying to package you and you were like, you know what's hard to package? A pregnant person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. And so, I mean, would you say that these kinds of major experiences, whether it's moving at 16 to LA or, or getting pregnant or, you know, do, do these things change your songwriting? Do you, do you notice when, when something in your life has happened via, uh, the way that you write songs or, or do the topics change immediately? Yeah. I mean, my, my entire first album was basically love songs and, and I hadn't even had like a serious boyfriend at that point in my life, you know? So, I went from writing these songs in my room about, you know, crushes I had on boys I never talked to, to traveling the world and having every kind of experience thrown at my face. Um, So my writing definitely, definitely changed. Um, And I don't know, I feel like because I didn't end up going to college and uh, I didn't pay my dues like there's kind of part of me that felt like I had to always try to be better at my craft um like kind of like make up for the insecurity of like oh god like what if it was just like this record that I made when I was you know a teenager and it and I never evolved from this um so I think that's another reason why I wanted to like do do the uh, country duo was just I wanted to try to get more respect as as a writer um and not be just seen as like a a pop star but i'm i'm always kind of trying to write write like a serious songwriter like someone who i would envision as a serious songwriter and i honestly i i just cannot help but love poppy melodies i can't help but like my ear if if there's three options of something i tend to love kind of the poppy or obvious version always um and and (laughs) much to my dismay that's just where my intuition always kind of leads me still to this day like I don't think I'm the most complicated lyricist it's pretty kind of cut and dry it's I'm not you know a poet over here but I I feel like my strong my strong suit is is pop melodies and that's because God damn it. That's because my mom was listening to so much Hall and Oates in the car when I was little. I mean, it's interesting, though, because, you know, I would imagine that people who um, who are seen as, you know, like, quote unquote, serious artists, like 
wish that they had enough of an abundance of pop stuff coming out of them that they could gravitate toward it, you know? Like, I think, like, the, the, the beautiful thing is what, you know, that comes naturally to you. That's, like, a gift. Like, coming up with poppy things that are your own is, like, you know... That's not thing. That's something. <laughs> I mean, the the really odd thing is is I turned 37 in July and I I don't really I'm not as exposed to pop music, new pop music, current pop music, I should say, anymore. Um the only place I really hear music is if I'm in my car. And I'm not in my car. I haven't been in my car a lot since the pandemic started. Uh I just, I really feel like I don't know what's going on. So it's interesting. Like I'm making a new record right now and I don't even know if what I think is poppy, like what that's even considered anymore because it's just pop music is so rhythmic and so different these days. But so I don't even know what you would like call the genre of pop that I write, (laughs) but um, it definitely has made me feel a little bit older these days. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I'm really interested about this new stuff that you've been working on. And um, if Pat didn't tell you that he let me hear some of it. What? <laughs> well, he like sent me a song. Oh, God. It's I'm so good, though. I love it. Uh, one of the things I thought listening to it was just like, I don't know, I feel like you're much cooler than people might infer from just knowing like your hit songs in terms of like, yeah, Thank you obviously you, like have pop melodies and inclinations but like you you do have like cool taste and uh make cool choices musically speaking or whatever and and maybe that's something that has that you know hasn't been at the forefront of of the way that you're presented Um, and that's like I feel like there's an awesome opportunity making an album in a pandemic with your partner you know to maybe be like really be yourself yeah I think uh it, I, I don't think anyone really understood what it's like in my brain when I'm making music until, you know, I started working with Pat and we started, you know, falling in love and eventually, you know, got, got married, have a baby. Like he knows, he knows me so well. And it was so, so incredibly freeing um, to work with someone who, I felt like actually saw me for the first time. Um, I mean, that's, we fell in love while we were recording probably because I, <laughs> because of that alone. Cause I felt like I was like being seen really for the first time. Cause he, he noticed all, all of the influences that I had and he respected where I was coming from. And I was like, Oh wow. Well you, you're actually like making me feel like I'm at the cool kids table. Thanks Patrick. Um, so he's been, he's been really just so supportive and has pushed me to like, the only people who have played on this record so far are Patrick and I, and he, like, I never used to be doing guitar parts and overdubs of ideas. And it's so amazing that we're in the studio making it by ourselves and that I'm able to like have the freedom to pick up an instrument I've never played and recorded and you know, I never had that chance before. I was always in the studio with like studio musicians that would do the parts and never had that chance. So I've, I've still just like learning so much every time I 
get in the studio with Pat because he's like, no, you go do it. You hear a part, you go figure it out. I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> well, also, obviously, like, Pat's just such a true music fan who, like, has consumed so much so much of the greatest music and, like, has, you know, like, to, to be able to synthesize, you know, stuff. Um, obviously, I love that dude, but such a, such a great producer. But the, the, the earlier part of the songwriting process, like, nowadays, for this new group of songs, for instance, like, what is it, what does your kind of practice of songwriting look like nowadays? Is there a time of day? Is there a room in the house you go to? Do you um, have a journal? What do you do? I, I've never, ever been a journaler. Um... I don't know. I just, I'm not disciplined enough. Um, I have a toddler, which doesn't give me a lot of (laughs) free time. That's why I say like this, the isolation doesn't really feel different from my own life because having a toddler is isolating anyway. But we have, we're really lucky. You've been to the house. We have a studio here. Um, We live in Nashville and we're kind of outside of town. And so basically like Monday through Friday, we have our incredible nanny who comes over and will take Reese during the day. And Patrick and I will come up to the studio and start fucking around. And, um, but mostly like a song, if I'm writing on my own, I really am a lazy writer and that I just literally will wait for an idea to like fall out of the sky and hit me in the head. Um, so sometimes it's like, Oh, you know, I, I went for our, a walk and I like couldn't get this melody out of my head and I'll come home and I'll sing it into my phone or put it down and then I'll play it for Pat and he'll say like, oh yeah let's go in the studio and record it or other times Pat will be in the studio working on something and I'll say hey what's that you know can I write something to that um so I would say about half of the album is songs where he had put down like a guitar line or bass part and some drums and he said hey you know go through these ideas and whatever ones you like you can have and whatever ones you don't I'm gonna take to the black keys and uh so I I took a handful of those and then um some were you know ideas where that I've had kicking around for a couple of them are you know five six years old and how close to done are you at this point uh it depends on who you ask I feel like we are very close to done we have 10 songs we just finished final vocals and harmonies and we're going through doing like last minute overdubs and the only person that we have we're going to call in to play something because we can't play it is we're going to have this girl Casey come in and play some strings um to replace some of the kind of placeholder synthy strings we have going on so she's going to come next week and at that point, I'm like, you know what, Pat? Like, 10 songs is good. Like, I'm done. And he's like, no, I think, you know, I think you need, like, 11 or 12 for your publishing contract. And I'm like, of course, Pat knows. Like, the <laughs> my publishing contract. And he's like, it won't count against your contract unless it's, like, 11 or 12 songs, I think. So I'm like, oh, I, like, I'm kind of done with this batch. They seem like they all fit together. And anything that we write now just feels like it's, like, you always write – like the the end songs for your album always feel like they're the next songs for your next album. Like they sometimes don't fit. So it'll be interesting. Um, we're going to, we just bought a house in South Carolina and we're going to head there in September for who knows how long. Cause my daughter's doing distance learning um, for school. And I, I don't know when 
that's all going to go back to normal if ever. Um, so my kind of thought is we'll be hopefully done with at least those 10 songs in by the time we head to South Carolina. So we'll see. Wow. So yeah, so it sounds like maybe it's a it's a out in 2021 kind of vibe. Well, this is crazy. Next year, next year is the 20th anniversary of the Spirit Room, which is so fucking weird to me. Um, and those records were never those records were never released on vinyl. And there are so many people who loved that record so much. So I'm trying to think if, like, I think in a perfect world, I would next year get the Spirit Room out on vinyl. And maybe like re-record songs on the spirit room as well, and make it like a double vinyl thing, um, and then also release a new record and hopefully play shows. Jesus, like I don't know, is that going to happen next year? Are oh people... man, yeah, I don't know. I feel like Pat will know before any I, of us. <laughs> I mean, I am, I'm the biggest like germaphobe, so I don't know if I'm ever going to leave the house again. But I mean, in a perfect world, I would also play some shows. But I don't know. I feel like next year it'll would be a great time to put out the new record and like as well as kind of honoring what brought me here and and re-releasing the spirit room it's interesting too to think that when you were going when you were taking classes at home it was called correspondence courses and now it's called distance learning when (laughs) Owen's doing it yeah wow I didn't even think of the fact that now my daughter's actually doing what I was like begging to do during high school yeah we're like Owen you don't know how good you have it you can like make your own lunch you can hang around the house all day like I wouldn't I don't know I'm the personality where I'm like oh thank god I don't have to go to school but of course they're all like desperately missing their friends yeah what what, are there any specific things that when you're procrastinating working on music are your go-to outlets for procrastination I don't know I mean having again having a toddler like I don't really feel like I have that much time for procrastination um I don't I I do feel like creativity breeds creativity and I feel like kind of one of my go-tos is like cooking or baking something um but no I feel like any time I have these days to actually work is just such a luxury. And some days, I mean, some days we don't get much done. Some days, like, we come into the studio and we, like, start talking about the news or something. Who knows? Like, today we're listening to <laughs> the new Metallica record. And we just were supposed to be doing guitar overdubs and ended up, like, talking <laughs> about that for an hour laughing. Um so it's also like working with working with Patrick is also like my alone time with my husband in my own house. Now that I have, you know, a teenager and my my son under the roof and we're all quarantined together. Oh, my God. I want to come hang out with you guys. You can just get in your car and drive. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 50 of the LSQ podcast. I've been your host, Jenny LSQ, excited to have made it 50 episodes and looking forward to the next 50. The very next one out in a few weeks is an interview with the artist Shamir and his new self-titled album comes out in early October as well. And, you know, if you're not already a subscriber, I hope you'll consider smashing that subscribe button. You can also reach me with questions and feedback on Twitter, at Jenny LSQ. 
Massive thanks again to Michelle Branch for that awesome conversation, and especially thanks to you for listening.